The following is a sermon from Park Church in Denver, Colorado. More information and resources can be found online at parkchurch.org. So today's scripture reading is from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 25. Uh, so if you don't have a Bible in front of you, there should be one in the, um, in the pew back. Um, and if you don't have a Bible of your own, please uh, take that with you as a gift from Park Church. So we're in Matthew, chapter 25, beginning at verse 14 and going through verse 30. Matthew writes, And Jesus says, For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now, after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he, also, and he also, who had the two talents, came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also, who had received one talent, came forward, saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed? Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest." So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has more, who has, will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Good morning, Park Church. It's good to see you all. My name is Neil. Serve as, as one of the pastors here at Park. Um, and if you've been here the past few weeks, uh, any of the past few weeks, you know, we're, we're in a, a pretty heavy portion of Scripture, like a, a heavy portion of Jesus' teaching um, on His return and what that means, what are the implications when He does return. Um, you know, his, his return is, is not immediate. We've been waiting a couple thousand years. Uh, it still hasn't happened. Uh, but it is imminent. It's imminent in the sense that it could come at any point. And so last week we looked in particular, Gary walked us through a large section, but especially that last parable um, is all about the need to be awake, to stay awake, to be ready. 
that Jesus, our Lord, will return. And he has opinions about the ways in which we live. If we understand opinion simply as just a view or a judgment or an assessment about things, Jesus has opinions. Like the, the God who made us has opinions about how we live. It just turns out his opinions are entirely correct every single time. Uh, but he, he cares. He cares. And you know, I think especially in, in passages like these, you know, this parable that we're going to look at this morning um, and then next week as well, th- there are some hard words of what Jesus calls us to. If that is void of his grace and his mercy, even what, what, what Joel was, was highlighting from the, the song lyric earlier, that, that it is to God's glory that he puts on display his mercy to his people, this welcome, this invitation to come to him, but to be rooted in the fact that we are not saved by doing enough, by stewarding our lives in certain ways, by thinking enough right thoughts and trying harder and being enough and getting things, repenting well enough and earnestly enough, all those things. That, that's the type of striving that Jesus frees us from. And he says, no, you're, you're, you're reconciled. We are reconciled to the God who made us by grace through faith in Jesus. Not something we can earn. And it's through trusting what Christ has done for us. He, he did live that life. He, he, he did do things perfectly. And so we receive that life, and that frees us up to then truly live, to experience his joy. So if last week was looking more at, hey, we, we, we need to stay awake. We need to be ready. This parable this week is looking more at, what does that readiness look like? How do we stay awake? And in particular, we're going to look at some ways that we get stuck uh, not paying attention uh, not living the, the life that God has, has laid out for us. Uh, uh, last week, last Sunday during Boiler Room Prayer, we'll pray before our, our services. Um, and anyone, all of you are welcome to, to come. We just spend some time to, to be still and invite the spirit who's already here, but to, to work actively. Uh, but JD, who's on staff with us, he was, he was leading that portion and uh, gave an analogy that, um, I don't know if you guys can relate to this, but, um, and I don't know how you use the, the Find My Friends app, if you use it at all. Uh, there may be some, some strange ways. I don't know. Um, I actually had, never mind. That's, that one's for later. Um, but I, I don't know if you've been in a, a similar situation where, you know, for me at times, you know, my wife, Erin, she'll be out with a friend maybe, and I'll get the, the boys down, do baths and read books, get them down. And then it, it, there, there are two types of people in this world, those who think you should soak your dishes and those who do not. And I, I'm a soaker of, of dishes. My wife is not. Um, so sometimes, sometimes on those evenings when I'm not as eager, uh, I, I just want to go relax for a little while. And, um, then I, you know, after a while I check the time and Hey, maybe I should, I should check the, the find my friends app. Oh, that, that dot's moving. Um, that, it's coming down I 25. Uh, I got about 20 minutes. I got 20 minutes to, to get ready, to, 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 st- to be alert, to stay awake. And even better if I can be like scrubbing those dishes, you know, when she walks in, like, wow, look how ready Neil is um, just to, to put those away. I, we have no Find My Friends app when it comes to the return of Jesus. And as, as kind of maybe, uh, I don't know, comical that, as that can sound, I think a lot of times we live that way. We live as though it's like, well, yeah, I'm, I'm going to get serious about following Jesus, kind of living into the profession of faith at some point down the road. And once things kind of settle down, once things are a little bit different, uh, right now I need to build here. I need to invest here. I need to give my life over here. Uh, I'm going to take that portion of my life seriously later. 
Uh, but we don't have that, I guess, pseudo luxury of saying, oh, I've got, I've got the last year. I've got, got, a, got a few months, got a few weeks. I'm going to kind of put things in order. And so Jesus calls us to stay alert, be ready. That's for each moment. Each moment that we live our lives, he wants us to stay alert, ready for his return. Uh, so we're going we're gonna to pray and then, and then walk through this parable and then and see, see where we can identify maybe with this, this last servant. And then find, hear, hear this, this welcome that Jesus gives us to live a different type of life. So let, let's, let's pray together. Uh, Jesus, thank you. Thank you that you are coming again. I thank you that uh, you have come, you've delivered us, you've released us of the burdens of this life, of, of, of striving and tr- trying to do it in our own strength, and you've brought us into the presence of the triune God to be known and to be seen, that we may enjoy you, to know that you enjoy us, Christ, because of your life, because of your work, because of relationship with you. And yet so often our lives do not look the way that we want them to. So often. We feel shame. We feel disappointment. And we're not in the place that we want to be. We hit roadblocks. Lord, we want to know that you see us there and that you're, you're active in the midst of that. And we also need you to wake us up in the places that we've, we've grown sleepy, where we've, we've kind of become dormant and, and settled in and, and participating in just false narratives about who you are and how the world works and what we should really pursue and how we steward our lives. We are, we are so often, often even willingly captivated by these things. Would you shine a light in those dark places? Would you expose the places that we, that we don't get it, we don't see it, we don't, we don't hear your voice in the way that we need to? Uh, Spirit, you are the one who does this work, and so we, we ask, we know that you're here. Just even, even seeing how you hover over what is chaos and you bring peace. That you're present in the midst of anxiety and you speak stillness. May you do that for us. May you do that for each of us in the ways we need it. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you have a Bible, I encourage you to open it back up. Our Bible app. Close the Find My Friends app. Open the Bible app. Um, Matthew 25. We are uh, there in verse 14. So we're going to walk through the parable. And then we're going to draw some things along the way and then look at how we may find ourselves in it. Verse 14. For it, this it here is referring to the kingdom of heaven. So go back to verse 1 of chapter 25. Um, Jesus is giving another parable to, to depict aspects of the kingdom of heaven, the way, the way the world works under the reign of Jesus. For it will be like a man going on a journey. Now the man here, this is, is Jesus going on a journey. That's, that's in the time in between his two comings. He, he has already come. He left, sent his spirit, and he is coming again. That journey is representing here for us that time between. Who called his servants, that's us, all those who would follow Jesus, profess to follow Jesus, be disciples of our Lord, and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he he went away. So this would be a, a common reality for uh, wealthy landowners. They, they'd have a number of servants and would have a, a trip that would take them away for a little while and, and bring some of the servants based on the relationship that, uh, that they already had with those individuals, uh, what they discerned of their ability, who they were, of their, you know, the trust that was built over time and say, here's a portion of my resources, my wealth 
that you're able to go do something with. And the, the assumption here is, is they would do something in line with the master's desires uh, because they, they had a relationship with him. They knew his heart and his purposes. And a, a talent, a talent is, is a lot of money. I mean, there, there's some debate as to how much a talent was. A lot of estimates will say it's, it's roughly one half of a lifetime of earning, of kind of a everyday, you know, wage laborer. Um, so even one talent, even the guy who got the one talent, a lot of money. He's dealing with a lot of wealth here, the two talents, the five talents. There's a lot that's, that's given to these servants to do something with. Verse 16, he who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. So these first two servants are setting up, Jesus is setting up a pattern. Like this is what's to be expected. You're given some wealth giving some resources, a relationship with the master, go do something with it. This is what he would expect. It's in the context of love and his kindness. They know his character. And so they eagerly go. They, they go and they, they, they bear more fruit. They invest it, and it's, it's immediately um, doing something with it. Then you get to verse 18. But he who had received the one talent went and dug, it in, the ground, dug in the ground and hid his master's money. So this is a break from the pattern. And here we're, he's kind of calling more attention here, like pay attention. Uh, Going to be a lot of, uh, of time spent on this, this last servant. Verse 20. And he, he who had, uh, and he who had, wait, nope, verse 19. It was off one. Verse 19. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. This is representing Jesus returning and, and, and us meeting him face to face. Verse 20. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I've made five talents more. And his master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also, who had the two talents, came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here, I have made two talents more. And his master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your of your master. So just as the, the first two servants eagerly went out to go invest the money, they come back eagerly to say, look what I've done with it. Look what I've done. I've, I, I've done, this is what, what you had desired, what you had hoped for. Uh, I've made more. And, and here it is back for you. And, and the master gives his commendation. Well done. Well done. This is what I desired for you. And notice between the five talents and the two talents, the two guys, they, they received the same commendation, the same praise. Well done, good and faithful servant. And they also both have an increased capacity to then oversee more, to be able to do more. More responsibility is given. And they also enter into the same joy of their master. They're not playing the comparison game. But they recognize the goal was to be faithful with what was given, not looking to what someone else has. Verse 24. He also who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talents in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. But his master answered him, you wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scatter no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, 
Even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is a hard word. It's a hard word. Uh, it's, it's fascinating that the, the goal of the master in giving what he did to his servants was not avoid loss, but actually do something productive with it. Like have it bear more fruit. And really, this is a, this is a principle that we experience in just kind of the broader world. You know, I can't say we have, um, my family and I have like a talent of money to invest, but whatever small percentage of talent um, that we have to invest, we, we work with a financial advisor and yeah, we, we anticipate a, a fair amount of risk, yes, even given, you know, global economy realities and looming recession and all those things. But we also anticipate over time that it's going to be wisely invested and, and bear fruit. Like it, it's going to grow over time. Uh, none of that's guaranteed, but wise investments generally leads in that direction. You know, if we go back after, you know, a couple years and, and say, hey, how's it going? What'd you do with the money we gave you? And it's like, hey, I found a, I found a really good hole uh, to bury your money in. It's called a savings account. Um, you actually lost money uh, because of inflation rate. Uh, but here, here you go. Here's back what is yours, um, just worth a little bit less than what it, what it was before uh, when you gave it to me. Like, uh, we're finding a new financial advisor, uh, which is a little, little complicated because uh, it's also my wife's employer. But... It's a reasonable expectation. Like, hey, giving something of value work in line with the desires of the owner. Desires of the, of the owner. But here we have this last servant who, who really insults the master, just says, here, have back what is yours. I, I really took no interest in what you wanted me to do with it. And I, I took one aspect of your character and kind of ran with that and just said, ah, it's probably safer probably safer just to bury it. You know, another way to translate this word for slothful would be shrinking or hesitating, like holding back. It's, it's kind of trapped in this fear and saying, I'm really not going to move forward. I'm not going to take any risk because what could happen on the other side of that? I'm not entirely sure. And, and the master said, at least give it to the bankers. You know, so they didn't have the most secure kind of financial systems, but uh, at the temple, they could invest the money and, and probably get a little bit of return. They had money lenders who were a little hit or miss, but still potentially there's a return on it. It's like to do something, to get out there and, 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 and give it a go, somehow in line with the desires of the owner. Well, how might we summarize this parable? Like the master, God entrusts to each of us uh, portions of his resources, like what he owns, the time, the energy, the capacity, the relationships, the opportunities in front of us, the money. He entrusts portions of these things to us, and he anticipates that we're, we're good stewards with them, in line with his purposes. And like the, the first two servants, if and as we invest that well and we bear more fruits and we come to that final day and we see Jesus face to face, we'll get the same commendation. Not because we've earned something before him, but because of his grace, he's freed us up to be able to, to live a life that, that was in a reflection of him, in honor of him, to glorify him, to serve others. But like that last servant, if we take the stuff that God has given us and we bury it in different ways, just kind of seek a life of, of pleasure and we want to find comforts, we don't really take risks, then we will also be met with a particular judgment. But this one is separation from God, as we see in this final servant. And it, it should strike us that this applies not just to those who kind of outwardly reject, outright reject who God is, but it's those who profess a faith. Like, yeah, I'm, I'm one of the servants. Yeah, I got some stuff. 
But then in the practical day-in, day-out realities of life, take no interest in what their Lord actually wants them to do. That's the, the, the last servant. But we may hear this parable and be like, that, that, that's like a really stark reality. It feels so binary. It's like, that's really what Jesus is doing. He's taking this future, like eschatological reality of, of final, when he returns and we see him face to face. We'll see this even more so in the text next week. There will be a division, the sheep and the goats. Are those who've trusted Jesus and then born a life consistent with that trust and those who have ultimately rejected Jesus. But what he's doing is, is bringing that future reality to bear in the present moment. Because I think the reality is we all feel like we're mixed bags. There are parts of me I'm like, yeah, I'm trying to invest over here and trying to give of myself and, you know, to be wise and maybe it's bearing some fruit over here. But other, other places where I'm, I'm probably burying that out of fear, out of my own sin, out of my own blind spots. So I think all of us feel that we have different elements of this to identify with the different servants. And so Jesus tells this parable to light up those places in our life. So where has it become kind of dark and shadowy? Uh, where have we buried what God has given to us and not sought to be in line with the desires of Jesus who gave it? That's what we're going to do the rest of our time. Where, where do we get stuck? Where do we get stuck? Why, why does this happen? How do we become like this last servant? And then what's the invitation on the other side, the life on offer that Jesus gives us to walk as the other servants? Well, if we look at this, this last servant, this slothful servant. You know, he fails to acknowledge responsibility. He gives back. He's like, sure, you gave me some stuff. I'll give it back to you, but I didn't improve upon it. I, did, I didn't do anything with it. I actually wanted to avoid the responsibility that I was called into. Why does this happen to us? Why does this happen to us? I, probably lots of different reasons, but I want, I want to look at at least four for us in, in how we experience um, a similar, similar reality. First one is this, comparison. Comparison. We focus on who and where other people are in life, missing what God has called us to. And we see this less obviously with that final servant, but more so with the first two. One is getting five talents, the other is getting two. The two-talent guy is like standing there, seeing the guy get 150% more than what he received. And he's not like bickering and frustrated and saying, do you not value me enough? Like, why am I not good enough to get more? Is my ability not strong enough? Do you not trust me? What? He eagerly, just like the first one, he eagerly gets to work. He's like, I'm not responsible for what he has or what I don't have. I'm responsible for what I do have. And how often do we get stuck in this? Comparing ourselves. We spend so much mental energy and just like striving to live somebody else's life. And we look at what they have or where they, have, where they are in life, what they've achieved or where they are relationally or what they look like or how people respond to them. Or like, oh, but if I, if I just had that, if I just had that giftedness or if I was able to, to be in that station of life or that season or whatever else, then, then I could really bear fruit. Then I could really do something uh, to, to love God, to love others, to, to be worthwhile. And yet all the while we miss, we miss what God has actually given to us. The genuinely good gifts that God has given to us to steward. Reminds me of the, at the end of the Gospel of John, uh, Peter's talking with Jesus. And Jesus tells him, it's like, hey, um, this is the kind of death that you're going to die. And he uses metaphorical language, but it's like pretty clear to Peter, it's going to be hard. It's going to be a pretty shameful and painful death. 
Without missing a beat, Peter looks over and he's like, well, but what about John? Like, okay, that's the death I'm going to die, but what, what about John? And Jesus is like, what is it to you? Like, what is it to you how John is going to die? What, what if he, he lives until I come again and he never dies and he's able to, to see me in my glory returning? You're not responsible to live his life. You're responsible to live yours. This is what you've been called to. This is what you've been given. Steward that. Honor me with that. So I think for us as followers of Jesus, we don't need to apologize for the things that are given to us. What opportunities are there? What privileges has God afforded you? What's, what's in front of you right now? Now, if we, if we attain those things through, you know, injustice or suppressing other people or, you know, at the expense of others, yes, let's repent of that, seek restoration, absolutely. But God gives good gifts to his kids, and he anticipates that we do something with it. We don't need to be apologetic about it. We can actually steward that to bear more fruit, which leads to the good of others as well. But also, we don't need to go around comparing ourselves. We can be freed of this. We can be free just to pay attention to, I, I don't know, where, where we are on the, the talent spectrum or scale or whatever else, but I know this is what God has given to me, at least for this season. Maybe it'll change. Maybe it'll grow. Maybe it'll become less. I don't know. But right now, this is what I have. How do I improve upon that? How do I honor Jesus with that? So we are free. We're free to get on investing well with what we do have and where we actually are rather than trying to live someone else's life. So that's the first one, comparison. Second one, (coughs) fear and shame. Our captivity to false narratives about God and ourselves, which are void of God's abundant love and grace. We become captive to these ways of thinking, these understandings of of who God is, of who we are, and then we, we don't, over time, we just don't know anything different. We just kind of habituate the same things and pattern our lives over the same things, and, and it's difficult to get out of it. I appreciate what Arthur Brooks says. Uh, he says, only 20% of Americans are morbidly afraid of death. None of us is like, oh, hooray, death. But you and I are not really afraid of death, for the most part, because 20% of us are. But we almost all have our own death fear. If you're afraid of failure, that's your death fear. If you're afraid of irrelevancy or being forgotten, that's your death fear. You need to figure out what your death fear is. What is your concept of your life that you're afraid to lose? That's your death. Anybody who says, work is my life, professional failure is your death fear. You cannot be fully alive if you're afraid of not being alive. What's your death fear? What's the thing? What's the relationship? What's the reality in your life? It's like, if I lost that, it might as well all be over. I may not physically die, but for all intents and purposes, there's death. Now, the Bible has language for this. We call that an idol, this theme of idolatry. The fact that where we take the really good gifts of God and then we elevate them and inflate them in our lives to become more important in our affections and what we pursue than God himself. And ultimately, that crushes us. It crushes us because we're not designed to worship the created things, but the created or the uncreated one who made all these things to enjoy for him. We also have to recognize that investing is inherently risky. Like there, there is a risk that is involved in, in taking what God has given and doing something with it. Uh, we might fail. At times, we will fail. One author, R.T. France, says this, risk is at the heart of discipleship. By playing it safe, the cautious slave has achieved nothing, and it is his timidity and lack of enterprise 
which is condemned. If our highest value is security, you know, it's kind of like, play it safe, keep it safe at all costs, then we actually fall into the same trap. Uh, we, we don't take the appropriate risk that God has called us to. And, and, and we miss the fact that one of the kingdom principles that Jesus will talk about again and again is all throughout Scripture is that we lose our life in order to find it. We actually lose something. We forfeit what we think we need to control, whatever that death fear is for you. Maybe there's a series of them. I'm asking the question. I'm like, oh, there's probably a few I could put in that category. If I were to lose that, what's on the other side? Maybe that is the space that Jesus really begins to work and to free us up to experience him more fully. I found that when you start pulling the threads of areas of fear, of anxiety, like what holds us back in life, you pull long enough, you pay enough attention, you're honest enough, and you find underneath that areas of shame in just about everybody's story. I'm often enmeshed with these fears. Could be from family of origin, our own past sin, current patterns of sin, um, just life experiences, the ways in which other people's sin is just like spilled out upon us and affected us. The ways in which we're wired comes from lots of different places, but shame is, is deeply pervasive. Kurt Thompson defines it this way, shame is the felt sense that I do not have what it takes to tolerate this moment or experience. It's some version of I'm not enough. There's something wrong with me. I'm bad or I don't matter. And maybe you're listening to this and say, well, isn't that true of us? Like, are we born into original sin? Like, are we, like, bent away from God himself and we need him to rescue us out of that? It's like, yes, absolutely. And God does not hate you. God loves you. The voice of shame is dripping with hatred, often self-hatred. It's this, it's this loathing that keeps us trapped in, 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 in this, this, this disease of darkness that prevents us from hearing the voice of the God who loves us. Listen to what Kevin Butcher says. Whenever you hear a shaming voice in your spirit, you're worthless, or I'm just about done with you, or will you ever get your act together? You can be sure it is not the voice of God, but of Satan masquerading as God. Dear brother or sister, you may be overwhelmed by a torturous, deafening choir of shaming voices even now. Please know your heavenly Father loves you too much to ever speak to you like that. Even when the Father deals with us sternly, speaking words of discipline, which sometimes he must, it is impossible to miss his love. God sent Jesus to deliver us from sin, from brokenness, from death, and from shame. And he brings us into loving union with himself. Yes, we need conviction. We need conviction. But the Spirit's conviction is not for the sake of, of belittling us and, and feeling as though there's no way out. The Spirit's conviction is one that invites us into the, the broad places of God's grace so we may walk in the freshness and the delight of his affection and the freedom of his, of his voice. What else shame does is it isolates us. Not only is it you know, it's hard enough, it actually drives us away from other people. Kurt, Kurt Thompson goes on to say, when we experience shame, we tend to turn away from others because the prospect of being seen or known by another carries the anticipation of shame being intensified or reactivated. However, the very act of turning away, while temporarily protecting and relieving us from our feeling, ironically, simultaneously reinforces the very shame we are attempting to avoid. Notably, 
we do not necessarily realize this is to be, this to be happening. We're just trying to survive the moment. But indeed, this dance between hiding and feeling shame itself becomes a tightening of the noose. We feel shame and then feel shame for feeling shame. Those of you who have experienced this know exactly what he's talking about, this dark spiral of shame. So there's no way out. I've done it again. I'm back in the same pattern. Here I am. Look what's been done to me. What does that mean about me? What does that mean for my identity and how the people see me? And then it can just spiral down and down and down to the point that we cannot hear the voice of our loving Savior, and it also renders us ineffective, ineffective in the kingdom of God. Now, Kevin Butcher goes on to say this, make no mistake, shame isn't trying to slow us down or distract us. Shame wants our, our very selves to die. This is the bottom line, my brothers and sisters. Shame is the satanic antithesis of God's love. If the love of God heals and fills and frees us to partner with the resurrected Jesus in his battle for humanity, shame assaults, cripples, and enslaves us, causing us to be both personally miserable and kingdom ineffective. A lot of times we'll say here at Park that transformation happens where grace meets shame. And we're able to be honest about these places, about our past, about our present, about what's been done to us, about what we've done, about what we perpetuate. When we're honest about that, and we do that in this community of grace, this environment of, of, of God's mercy, that he hears us, but also doing that with other brothers and sisters to receive receptivity, to receive a welcome. That is where we're changed. Because we know that no matter what is seen about me, no matter what darkness is lit up, I'm still loved. Uh, God hasn't run from me at that point. He's actually pursuing you in the midst of that. So wherever you are in that journey, uh, receive that invitation. Receive that invitation to, to walk in the light, to come and, and confess and be honest about reality and receive his, his mercy. Well, third, maybe the most insidious is busyness for God. We exhaust ourselves with activity and performance, meanwhile missing the heart and purposes of God. Now, this is the one that will get you the most applause in a building like this, um, around other people. Uh, performance-driven, it's doing lots, we're working hard, we're always showing up, doing extra, whether it's the work context, church context, wherever we are, we are that we're just doing more. We think this is what fruitfulness is. You know, it feels like it's actually doing what the first two servants did. You know, they, they took what, what they had and they got to work to bear more fruit. And yet it misses the prior relationship that they had with him. The servants are in relationship with their master. And he was able to discern their ability, not just like their, their kind of giftedness, but what capacity do they have relationally to discern what, what his will was. And that only comes by slowing down, by paying attention. Our understanding of discipleship here at Park is that we're reconciled to God by grace, through faith, and then we're learning to be with Jesus and to follow his way of life. But to be with Jesus is not just kind of the throwaway to get to the real stuff of like, go, go do more, you know, get to work. You know, we need you to, to serve and volunteer and, and, and do stuff out in the world. You know, be with Jesus is, is what we're called to, these rhythms of, of slowing down, of paying attention, of hearing his voice, of communing with him in scripture and in prayer and with other people. 
slowing down. A song that we were playing again and again on, on Sabbath this past weekend was one I stumbled upon by Porter's Gate, um, Slow Me Down. Oh, good shepherd, slow me down. Slow me down. How often do we need that? And we think we're, we're doing so much, but really if we could just release that, that, that that's kind of become our identity in a sense out in the world. If we can release that and hear the voice of commendation from our Savior because of what he's done, then we begin to, to walk bearing fruit in the way that we are designed to. But this is the, the John 15. We abide in Christ so that we be, may bear much fruit, not the other way around. Well, then last, rationalizing and theologizing. We overplay certain truths to the exclusion of others, ultimately presuming upon God's grace. This may come in the form of you know, a line like, God is love, therefore he doesn't care how I live. Absolutely, God is love. It's true. All throughout Scripture, point to specific places. But he also has a lot of other things to say about himself and his people and what it looks like to be his church. And if, if all we have is kind of a, a God is love theology without anything else integrated with it, then we begin to, to actually bring in cultural conceptions of what love is, uh, which means he doesn't place any demands on us. He would never tell us that we would need to, to turn from a certain way of living and, and live a different way because this is where joy is found and what he's called us to. Yes, God is love. Let's, let's have that in a, in a broader context. Or a similar one would be, God wants me to be happy. It's like, close. God is after our joy, 100%. He desires for us to, to participate in the joy that the triune God perpetually, eternally enjoys. But that doesn't mean that there... There isn't pain to be endured. That doesn't mean that there isn't repentance to, to turn from things. I mean, he has called us to pursue him and in him find that joy. Really what we're looking at, and really the, this, this last sloth, slothful servant, he had kind of a, a you-do-you you do mantra uh, in a first century context. He's like, sure, I've been given these things, I have these things, have the opportunities, uh, but I just kind of want to pursue my own life. I want to pursue my own pleasures. I don't want to be interested in, in the one who made me, the one who gave me what he did. I, I just want to go over here and, and do these things instead. And how often does that find its way into our own lives and our own assumptions? Now, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, um, says this, calling it cheap grace. He'd say this is a, a concept of cheap grace. It's a longer quote, but it's worth it. The essence of grace, we suppose, is that the account has been paid in advance, and because it has been paid, everything can be had for nothing. Since the cost was infinite, the possibilities of using and spending it are infinite. What would grace be if it were not cheap? Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession, absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ, living and incarnate. Costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it, a man will go and sell all that he has. It is the pearl of great price to buy which the mer merchant will sell all his goods. It is the kingly rule of Christ, for whose sake a man will pluck out the eye which causes him to stumble. It is the call of Jesus Christ at which the disciples leave their nets and follow him. Costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again. The grace which must be asked for, the door at which a man must knock. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow. 
And it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a man his life. And it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin. And grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it costs God the life of his son. Ye were bought at a price. And what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered him up for us. Costly grace is the incarnation of God. At the end, the the problem is when our profession doesn't match our lives or vice versa. Although we say, we we believe that we want to pursue, um, that we we tell other people we do believe or, or try to live our lives in light of, and, and there, really, there really isn't much in our life that's it's an active turning toward that. I had the chance a few years ago to, to talk with a missionary. It was, I think it was in 2020. It was early COVID. And he and his family were forced to come back from India a little bit early. Um, uh, some health complications with, with one of their children. He was back and uh, he said, the best way I can describe what I see in the American church right now and, and really across Western culture is that there's this satanic lullaby that has lulled people to sleep. It sounds good, it feels good, it's comfortable. Uh, lots of people are, are kind of in tune with the same lullaby, and so they're, they're slumbering alongside one another. But they fail to wake up to the reality of who Jesus is and what he's invited us into, what he's called us into, what he's demanded of those who would follow him. Stuart Weber has a similar, a similar quote. In our lifestyle of comfort in Western culture, we are too easily lulled to sleep. We fail to live the life of obedience, faith-filled risk, and so we fail to bear kingdom fruit, displeasing our master. Such action will come back to haunt us at the judgment seat of Christ. There is a better way. There's a better way to participate in. There's a greater invitation. There's a life on offer that Jesus has given to us. He says, I, I've invited you into reconciled relationship with God, and I've given you these good gifts. Begin to participate in that life. You know, we have these dual threats in our Western society, uh, one of a, of a lack of, meaningless, uh, of meaning. There's just like pervasive meaninglessness of, of what are we really living for? We kind of suspect that really I'm just living for some temporary pleasure. You know, I've got, I don't know, 77 years on, on this planet, and I'm, I'm going to suck as much joy out of it as I can. And so if we have meaningless and all, meaninglessness on the one side, we have this hyper-individualism on the other side. We assume that, yeah, I'm pursuing this life of pleasure, and it's largely up to me to make it happen. You're sure other people may be useful for a little bit, for a little while, um, but it's up to me to kind of craft the right life that's going to give me the experiences and the, the temporary joy that I, I long for. And here comes Jesus in this parable saying, you're actually able to walk abiding in my love, knowing my heart, hearing my voice, submitted to my word, to bear much fruit in such a way that we saw the commendation of the first two servants. You've been faithful over a little, I will now set you over much. That in this life, carving out the capacity, the ability to oversee whatever the new heavens and new earth look like, the things we will do, the enjoyment that we have of our God, the life that we're living now continuing on into eternity. 
That's what we're participating in now. And we have the opportunity to do that with one another. In the places where we feel the shame, where we feel stuck in fear, where we need to confess something, where we need to bring something into the light, we're able to do that with one another as the people of God, headed toward the same direction, experiencing his freedom so we may bear much fruit. This is the offer that is given to us, this joy of the master, this joy of the master that we're, we're able to feel now, to walk in now, to participate in now, and all of that because of the grace of Jesus who has invited us into it. So what has God given you? You know, it helps sometimes just to, to take stock. What relationships do you have? What people are around you? What work are you doing? What season are you in? What capacity do you have? What energy do you have? What resources do you have? What does it look like to take that and because of his grace, begin to bear fruit in the ways in which we invest it? I want to end with a, with a poem. Um, in fact, the, we'll go straight into communion from that. So if those serving communion, if you wouldn't mind coming forward uh, to grab the, the elements. I'm going to read this poem and, and, and allow the, the spirit to stir. You know, what, is, what is he waking you up in? And what does readiness look like for you uh, as you, you step into this next week? And again and again to hear his voice of kindness. Yes, we long for the final commendation, well done, good and faithful servant. But we do that from a place of already hearing the commendation that Jesus the Son was given at his baptism. This is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. This is, you are my beloved son. You are my beloved daughter with whom I am well pleased. Because of the work of Jesus, we have relationship with God our Father. And now we're able to participate in life and what he's called us to in such a way that we may bear much fruit. So I'm going to read this poem. It's called Only One Life. Two little lines I heard one day traveling along life's busy way, bringing conviction to my heart and from my mind would not depart. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one. Soon will its fleeting hours be done. Then in that day, my Lord, to meet and stand before his judgment seat. Only one life will uh, soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, the still small voice, gently pleads for a better choice, bidding me selfish aims to leave and to God's holy will to cleave. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, a few brief years, each with its burdens, hopes, and fears. Each with its clays I must fulfill, living for self or in his will. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. When this bright world would tempt me sore, when Satan would a victory score, when self would seek to have its way, then help me, Lord, with joy to say, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Give me, Father, a purpose deep, in joy or sorrow, thy word to keep. Faithful and true, whate'er the strife, pleasing thee in my daily life. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Oh, let my love with fervor burn, and from the world now let me turn. Living for thee and thee alone, bringing thee pleasure on thy throne. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one. Now let me say, thy will be done. And when at last I'll hear the call, I know I'll say, twas worth it all. 
Only one life, it will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Hey, thanks for listening. Park Church exists to make disciples of Jesus for the glory of God and the joy of all people. More information and more resources can be found online at parkchurch.org. Take care.